And before we do this, I'll have to warn all of you out there, this next section of this uh, concerned radio show, this program, which is dealing always, of course, with the realities of existence itself, uh, warns all of you who are women and children, you'd just better go. Uh, and you know who you are. Now, uh, women and children doesn't have anything to do with uh, age, sex. It's, uh, it's a state of mind that uh, you can be an 87-year-old man and be in the women and children category. And quite a few of them are, actually, if you want to truth her out. But uh, would you please bring this up? Because it's a very scary thing, and we do not wish to uh, cause any, uh, you know, you've got to put these little labels on these things. Now, listen carefully now. Bring it up there, Tony. Deep down in the heart of all of us, there lurks that thing. It's that same thing that lurked in the heart of Ark when he sat scrunched next to the very first fire in that antediluvian cave many primordial centuries ago. I looked out over the dark, sweeping landscape with the screaming wind howling through the trees and the great crashes of thunder and the rolling storms of rain roaring against his rock-bound cave. <laughs> that early fear. Yeah. I hear you talking, Daddy. Akron, Ohio. In the twisted world of loneliness and twisted nightmares, Dale Spower wonders if the chase will ever end. It began six months ago with seven steps to hell and a flying saucer named Floyd. <laughs> Evil always comes clothed in such innocent packages. A flying saucer named Floyd. That's like meeting a monster gorilla named Howard. As with great chromium fangs in the pre-dawn hours of a gentle April morning, sour a Portage County, Ohio Sheriff's deputy chased a flying saucer 86 miles. And now the strange evil craft is chasing him. And he is hiding from it, a bearded stranger peering past the limp curtains of a tiny motel room in Solon, Ohio. He no longer is a deputy sheriff. His marriage is shattered. He has lost 40 pounds. He lives on one bowl of Wheaties and a sandwich each day. Somehow it seems symbolic that it would be a bowl of Wheaties, the breakfast of champions. <laughs> the same cereal that makes Reverend Bob Richards so springy and so irritating. He walks three miles to an $80 a week painter's job. His motel room costs him $60 a week. The court has ordered him to pay his wife $20 a week for the support of two children. That leaves Dale Spower exactly nothing. Out of his poor little existence, the flying saucer did it. If I could change all that I'd have done in my life, he said... If I could change all of I'd done my life, I would change just one thing, and that would be the night we'd chase that damn thing, that saucer. He spit the word out. Saucer. Like an obscenity. Others might understood. Yes. Four other officers took part in the sinister April drama. Police Chief Gerald Bookert of Mantua, Ohio, saw the craft. He photographed it. 
the pictures turned out badly. An odd, fuzzy white thing suspended in blackness. Today, Chief Bukert laughs nervously when he speaks of that night. <laughs> I, I, I just read now talk about it. It's something that I should be forgotten, should be left alone. I saw something, but I don't know what it was. <laughs> Special Deputy W.L. Neff Road was spoured during the chase. He won't talk about it. His wife, Jacqueline, explains, I hope I never see him like he was after the chase. He was real white, almost in a state of shock. It was awful. And people made fun of him afterwards. He never talks about it anymore. Once he told me if that thing landed in my backyard, I wouldn't tell a soul. He's been through a ringer. Patrolman Frank Panizella saw the chase end in Conway, Pennsylvania, where he works. He saw the craft, too. Now he is silent. Friends say that he had his telephone removed because of calls about that evil April morning. H. Wayne Houston was a police officer in East Palestine, Ohio. He had worked there seven years. Several months after the saucer passed above him in the night, he resigned going to Seattle, Washington, and is now driving a bus. Houston now goes by Harold W. Houston. He tells you, sure, I quit because of that thing. People laugh at me, and there was pressure. You couldn't put your finger on it, but the pressure was there. The city officials didn't like police officers chasing flying saucers. Thus, the story of the other officers. Three of them still wear badges, but do not speak of what they saw. Spower and Houston have turned in their badges. And now, this very minute, Dale Spower hides in Solon, a fugitive from a flying saucer named Floyd. He cannot escape the strange craft. It remains with him, locked in his mind, reappearing in nightly sweating dreams that are a bizarre mixture of reality and fantasy. Of that night, he is driving car number 13. Car number 13. Barney Neff is beside him. They're heading east along U.S. 224 between Randolph and Atwater when they spot a red and white 1959 Ford alongside the road. Barney and Dale stop to check it out. The car is filled with walkie-talkies and other emblems. A strange thing is painted on the side, a triangle with a bolt of lightning inside it. Above the emblem is written, Seven Steps to Hell. Suddenly, Spower hears a humming sound behind him. He turns, sees a huge, saucer-shaped craft rising out of the woods. The entire underside of the craft gleams with an intense, purple-white light. Spower calls to Barney, who turns, sees the craft, and then stands, paralyzed. Neither moves. Spower is sure he can't move, that his limbs will not work. He does not know why he is sure of this. He just believes it. The ship rises to about 150 feet and moves directly over the patrol car. Both men feel warm, pleasing heat from the light blazing from the bottom of the craft. But the light is so intense that tears stream from their eyes. Spower thinks about moving back to the car, yet he does not. Some trace of a thought which seems to tell him that if he touches the car, it will disappear. Then the saucer moves away from the car and stops. As though on command, both men race to the, race to the cruiser. Later, Spower thinks that is strange that both would move at exactly the same instant. Spower radios in, telling the desk man what he's seen. Other reports have already flared out over the radio from all over the county. Shoot it, the radio man tells Spower. Then, again, some strange feeling tells Spower not to get out of the cruiser and shoot at the craft. He would be in danger. It is now about 50 feet across and perhaps 15 to 20 feet high. On top of it is a large dome. An antenna juts out from the rear part of the dome. 
The night sergeant comes on the radio and tells Spower to chase it. The craft moves away, and Spower follows it, slowly at first, slowly at first, and then faster and faster and faster and faster. Later, he hit speeds of more than 100 miles an hour, racing eastward through Ohio and into Pennsylvania. The craft seems to be letting Spower follow it. It waits for him at intersections. Once, it seems to double back when he is forced to turn away from its eastward path. Finally, after the sun has risen, the chase ends near Pittsburgh when power runs out of gas. This is what happened, according to Spower and Neff. Now, every night, Spower relives the chase in a twisting, turning, sweating nightmare. But in his dream, car 13 vanishes, disappears when he touches it. And then Spower stands alone beneath the huge ship. At this moment, he awakens in his motel room, shivering and wet. He lies there for a minute, just stares at the ceiling, and tries to fall asleep again. As he speaks of the six months since he saw the flying saucer, called Floyd, it's difficult to tell when the nightmare stops or reality begins. Spower does not know what happened to the sedan with seven steps to hell written on its side. After the chase, his daily routine was washed away in a sea of reporters, television cameramen, Air Force investigators, government officials, strange letters from places like Little Rabbit, Arkansas, and Australia that told him what to do if the little green men tried to contact him. My entire life came crashing down around my shoulders. Everything changed. I still don't really know what happened, but suddenly it was as though everybody owned me and I no longer had anything for myself, my wife, my home, my children. They all seemed to fade away and mean nothing. Something happened to Dale, said his wife. I don't know what it was. He'd come home that day and I never saw him more frightened before. He just acted strange and listless, just sat around and looked pale. Then later he got real nervous. He started to run away. He just disappeared for days and days. I wouldn't see him. Our marriage fell apart. All sorts of people come to the house, investigated reporters. They kept hounding him. They hounded him right into the ground, and he changed. Then one night, Dale came home very late. He isn't sure what happened. He walked into the living room. There were some other people there. Things were very tense, very confused. He grabbed his wife and shook her hard. He kept shaking her. It left big, ugly bruises on her arms. He doesn't know how or why. That was the end of July. Denise filed assault and battery charges. Dale was jailed. He turned in his badge. A newspaper printed a story about the deputy who chased the flying saucer, being jailed for beating his wife. And when he got out of jail, Dale left town, turned his back on everything. But the saucers followed him, locked in his dreams. In Ravenna, Ohio, Denise, his ex-wife, can only say, Dale is a lost soul. Everything is finished for us. In Solon, Dale said, I've become a freak. I'm so damn lonely. Look at me, 34 years old, and what do I have? Nothing. Who knows me? Everyone, I'm Dale Spower, the nut who chased a flying saucer. My father called me several weeks ago. A long time ago, we had a fight. I hadn't heard him from him for years. And then he calls me after years. Do you think he called to ask me how I was, to say I love you, son, to see if I wanted to go fishing or something? Hell no. He wanted to know if I'd seen more flying saucers. I tried to go to church for help. I went to church and the minister introduced me to the congregation. He said, we have the man here who chased a flying saucer with us today. And I got up and left. 
Dale Spower wept as he told what the flying saucer named Floyd has done to him. He calls it Floyd because he saw it once more while he was still working for the sheriff's department. The radio operators knew civilians were monitoring their broadcast, so they agreed to use a code name if the flying saucer was seen again. They called it Floyd. Dale Spower's middle name. Dale was driving east on Interstate 80S one night in June. He looked up. There it was. Floyd's here with me, he whispered into the car radio. Then he parked the car and sat there, alone. This time, Barney Neff was not with him. Dale did not look out of the window. He just stared at the floor of the cruiser, sat there for nearly 15 minutes, not looking outside, not wanting to see Floyd. When he looked up, Floyd had disappeared. Yet it follows him and has ruined his life. This he believes. The preceding newscast was sent to you as a public service. I got public wallar. <laughs> New York. Oh, wow, wow. They're working on a machine that is an entertainment machine. Now, think about it for a minute. Now, don't, don't get excited. It does not carry radio. It does not have television in it. It's a machine that entertains in itself. It's an entertainment machine. A machine that is so pleasing. Its movements are so pleasing, so exotic, so erotic, that it's an entertainment machine. And you know, they can set this entertainment machine. They can tape it. They can use different types of tape, program different types of information into it, and set it in different ways, so that it can be very innocent entertainment for children. And then it can be entertainment for teenagers. And then it can be entertainment for the guys that sit above the American Legion Hall at 3 o'clock in the morning and smoke cigars and sit there and say rotten things and tell terrible jokes. And this thing will be able to be purchased from an outstanding electronic firm within the next two years. And that will be easily serviced by any TV repairman. It's called an excitement machine. Right. Sure. I'm not inventing it. Everybody sits there and says, oh, yeah, he's inventing it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he? Oh, is he? Uh, don't be so sure I'm inventing it. You know, it's, that's scary, though, thinking about it. A lot of things are scary, you know, thinking about it. And I'm going to tell you something that, that uh, I've never told anybody, actually. <laughs> uh, and I'm serious. I, I, I am back home from the Army. And reading this story about this poor guy that got caught in this terrible bind with this, the flying saucer. And I would like to add another note to this that this happened last April 17th and the editor's note attached to that story which was a, an AP story reads last April hundreds of people in Ohio reported sighting this unidentified flying object so this guy wasn't the only one that saw it the Air Force said it was a satellite but whatever it was the encounter with this phenomenon proved a strange grim turning point in the life of a deputy sheriff from Ravenna, Ohio so that actually happened. It was not an invented story. And I'm going to tell you a strange story of a thing that happened to me, which, uh, uh, one of those things that, that I remember telling about it when I got home, and this was before anybody had ever said anything about flying saucers. I don't think I was out of the Army three days, Tony. I'd just gotten out. And uh, I was on my way to the VA, the Veterans Administration, 
I was there. I was, you know, I was working for some kind of handout. They give down, you know, the 5220 club or some kind of cockamamie deal. I was trying to work on fill out all the forms, you know, and they sell me another pair of combat boots or they give me something. And I was trying to, I was trying to, uh, you know, I was just riding along there in that, in that, that bus. And I went, went into the VA and I sat down. There were about maybe 150, maybe 200 other ex-GIs all sitting in a great big room. And we still had on our field jackets. And a couple of guys were sitting there. They still had on there. Hey, come on, let's go here, boy. A couple of them still had their sailor suits on. A couple of Marines sitting in there. And we're all sitting in this big room. And up in front, uh, there's a couple of desks, two or three civilians sitting around. And they were calling our names out one after the other. And you know those long, you know that terrible feeling of being caught in something very official? You just sit, you read the paper, and you work the crossword puzzle, and you sort of drowse off. That smell that you smell in official buildings like post offices and courts and places where you go to pay your tax. The unemployment office, that's a great one. You know, those long humming hours and you, you hear a fan somewhere going someplace and doors closing and people talking and guys walking around. And the walls are always kind of brown and grayish colored and the lights are yellow and... The windows are gray and the floors are always made out of marble so that when people walk, it goes clack, 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 clack. And you sit on this bench and it's made so that it pokes you right in the kidney. Got a special thing, you know, and you have to keep getting up and you keep walking to the door and saying, where is it? And they tell you and you go down and you come back and you sit down and it goes on and on. So I'm sitting there saying I'm still dressed in my GI uniform. You know? I got my field jacket on and my old shoes there and drowsing off and I didn't know anybody just a lot of guys sitting around and they kept calling their names out and the guy who was called would get up and sit there by the desk and he'd get bend over and they'd look at papers and oh I get itchy when I think of that stuff you know oh I hate that kind of scene going down and filling out something for a license just bugs me I hate that I really do that uh, that whole official world is just a no wonder Kafka had the feeling that Kafka had about that scene. Boy, you know, the office. You know, everybody there. Nobody knows what the papers are. They just pass them around. They keep saying, go down to aisle seven. Uh, the man in cage four. And he looks out at you and says, no, you don't have it filled in right. You have to go back to cage three. And you get in another line. And then there's a little fat lady who looks at you and says, no, we can't take those on Tuesday. And you say, what do you mean, Tuesday? She said, well, don't you read right out the bottom? It says, cage three does not operate on Tuesday. You'll have to go down to aisle six, go down and ask for Mr. Morrissey down there. And there's a long line in front of Morrissey. And, oh, wow, what a cockamamie thing. Oh, yeah! I can feel ah! Excuse me. That's after a long lifetime spent fighting desks and standing in front of cages and looking in through windows and passing papers back and forth. And so I'm standing around in this room there looking out of the window, and they always have these big radiators, you know, the kind of big ones that are, and they go shh, hot, and, and you're, you're kind of itchy, and my uniform's scratching a little bit. Guys are coming up and asking me for a match, and I don't smoke, I don't have a match, and they keep looking at me like I'm nutty. What is it? You don't smoke? What are you, nut? What is it, man, huh? They figure that I should have a pink uniform on it. What is it? What is it? One of them guys, and I say, I don't smoke. You want to fight about a Mac? All right. You know, we're still in the Army Syndrome. And so now, after about 17 hours of sitting on my you-know-what and getting itchy and so on, they start turning the lights out. And the guy up in the front says, All you men uh, whose names weren't called today, come on back tomorrow. 
That'll be all for today. I'm sorry, but uh, we just don't have any more time. We close here at 5 o'clock. I look at my watch. It's 10 minutes to 4. You know how they are in these places. They start closing up. They want to make sure all the drawers are closed, you know, and they keep walking back and forth, and they want to make sure they finished all their sandwiches from lunch and stuff, you know, so they start closing up. Well, then I'm out in the, out in the air now, see, little realizing a very eerie experience is about to occur to me. I'm, my head is half asleep. My behind is half asleep. One foot is asleep. I'm walking along... Now I'm standing on the corner waiting for the bus. There's a lot of other guys, raggle-taggle, bunch of steel workers and a couple of fat ladies with big shopping bags with phones or something in them. You know, there's people that always carry these shopping bags with big pieces of paper and you see comics sticking out and bones and there's a foot sticking out of the bag, you know, the whole scene. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm standing there waiting. And this is a true story. I'm not inventing this at all. So finally the bus comes along. Now remember, this is a steel mill area. This is the southern part of Chicago the northern part of Indiana, the belching furnaces for miles around. You know, have you noticed they always describe furnaces as belching? Well, they really more like burp. They don't really belch. And, and uh, for miles around, you see the cold dust and the blast furnace dust and the crud and it's gray. And I, you know how, you know those, I wonder how many days each one of us has stored way back in our mind file catalog, that catalog, that memory file, days when we were totally out of it. You couldn't conceivably remember. I, I, I wonder what would happen. Did you ever, do you ever get this thought? I, I or, or am I the only type that gets this kind of thought? I'm walking around, you know, doing something once in a while. I'm, I'm just doing something. It's walking, just breathing. And suddenly it occurs to me, if three years from now, I was suddenly put right back in this scene, this very minute, right at this very point in time, I wonder if I'd remember this. Can you think of all the places that if I were to pop you back into it, that you have been, maybe eaten a meal, maybe even slept all night? If I threw you back in there, you wouldn't even remember a bit about it. Wouldn't remember it at all. You'd say, what is this place? I'd say, don't you remember this place? Why, don't you remember, what was her name? I think it was uh, Eleanor, wasn't it? Why, that was the whole weekend. And you don't remember this place? Don't you remember the job was over there under the stairs to the left? And you say, huh, must have been somebody else. That's right, it was. <laughs> it was the other self. It was that dead walking around breathing self. That self that has, has no memories, nothing. And so there I am. I'm, I'm, I'm going through one of those days. I'm just sort of half dead. And I get into the bus. The big bus, you know, big comes along, Mark. You know that little moment of, of, uh, of victory after you've been waiting for about an hour and a half for the bus and it actually comes. That's one of those life's little great feelings, you know. And the bus comes along and the door goes slamming open. I go in and I go clumping back. And now I'm sitting in the very last part of the bus. You know, when you sit in the back, all the way over by the window, and you've got your feet up in that big well over the, you know, the wheels, where the wheels are, and your feet are sticking way up. I always sit in the back, I see. So I'm sitting there with my my boots on and my, my field jacket and... And I, yeah, my only concession to civilian life is I don't, I'm not wearing my cap, you know. I don't have the overseas cap. So I'm just sitting there, and I'm looking out of the back window of the bus. It's kind of dirty. We're driving along, and we're in about 87 million cars now that are coming back from the steel mill. And the shift is changing, and it's gray, and it's starting to rain a little bit. And it's getting just a little bit dark. It was, oh, about 5.30, quarter to 6, something like that. It's kind of gray out. And I'm looking out over a long, dirty, terrible-looking field. There's a field, you know the kind of field that you see around freight yards? That kind of field. 
some little brown weeds and a lot of tin cans and old oil drums and wrecked cars and a couple of sheds. You could see some tracks going off into the distance. A lot of signal flare, big, big signal towers and high-tension towers. And I'm sitting in the back of this thing looking out when all of a sudden, all of a sudden, without any warning, it happened. This fantastic moment. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Absolutely could not believe what I was seeing. And to this day, I don't know what I saw. I saw something silver. that just skimmed right over the field. Just skimmed right across the field. And I looked around. Nobody else sees it. Skimmed right across the field. And it went... And it was gone. So help me. This silver round thing, I saw it. It skimmed right across the field and then just went straight up in the air and was gone. I thought at first it was an airplane crashing. Then I thought somebody had thrown something, but it was glowing. I, so help me, I, I, I feel very foolish telling you this story. Don't ever let it get back to Long John. I'm telling you. I saw this thing and it just disappeared. Went up in the air and gone. I sat there, I couldn't believe it. And I, I looked around, and nobody else saw it. They're all sitting there, you know. The people are guys. One guy's eating a salami sandwich, and another guy's asleep. And there's a lady sitting there looking at her horoscope, and, and the bus is rattling along over the railroad tracks. And to this day, I always, whenever I read those stories about what people have seen, and these stories come through, I always remember that afternoon. But the term flying saucer had not been coined then. That was the next year the flying saucers began to be talked of. The next year that all started. But I saw this thing. I know it, you know. My eyes are fairly decent. My head isn't so good. My eyes are up. And we'll see you tomorrow night, 10.30, at the limelight. Wow!